How about making the medical conversion of boys into girls and girls into boys? Illegal. We don't allow minors to get tattoos. They can't drink or drive or both. They can't vote. And plenty of them are confused enough and hurt enough and starve for attention enough to drift into the hands of the villainous, woke propagandists to allow the butchers to cut off their breasts and their balls. We have already passed legislation in much of the Western world outlawing so-called conversion therapy, which was a pseudo-problem to begin with because it was virtually never happening except among more explicitly fundamentalist counselors who were sporadically attempting to remediate, is there a more politically correct word, homosexuality. I don't know if anyone noticed, but the most severe form of conversion therapy is precisely the double mastectomies, removal of ovaries, uteri, and testes, and hormonal transformation of hapless children. So now a counselor, a physician, or social worker risks his or her license, reputation, and livelihood if she or he dares talk to a minor about identity. But a butcher masquerading as a benevolent surgeon can castrate with impunity and be celebrated as a moral paragon. How about we stop doing this? It's wrong. Uh, do I really have to say this? It's not just wrong. It's Auschwitz and Gulag level wrong. It's Nazi medical experiment level wrong. It's unit 731 level wrong. And I'll put a trigger warning on that. Look up unit 731 at your extreme peril. And I'm dead serious about that. We are five days away from fundamentally transforming the United States of America. And Barack knows that we are going to have to make sacrifices. We are going to have to change our conversation. Uh, we're going to have to change our traditions, our history. We're going to have to move into a different place. Wow. The how, I mean, how alarming is that? When we first heard it, we didn't know exactly what she meant other than transformation. Wait, I don't want to change our history. But look at how well coordinated everything has become. They did change our history. They're still changing our history. They're still changing our traditions. It's remarkable how well-planned this was. Well, according to the New York Post, grievance has become the predominant theme at Monticello. They say from the ticket booth to the visitor's center, which is decorated with contemporary painting of Jefferson's weeping slaves, to its final gift shop display, it's no longer telling the story of Thomas Jefferson. In addition to the ticket booth and the gift shop, which features works by critical race theorist Ibram X. Kendi uh, and uh, Tanisha Coates, but only one biography about Jefferson himself. The estate reportedly discusses the Native Americans who lived on the land before Jefferson purchased it. It also offers an in-depth look at Sally Hemings, Jefferson's mistress. We, we do not know if Sally Hemings was a mistress or not. 
There was a book that came out in the 90s that said it was true. It was retracted within two weeks, but nobody ever covered that. There is evidence in newspaper coverage at the time as a smear on Thomas Jefferson that his brother was making it with Sally Hemings. So any DNA that says Jefferson, yeah, it might be Tom, but it might be his brother, and that's what they were saying at the time. My God, we are not going to survive unless we preserve our history. Uh, Jefferson's mistress, who allegedly bore him six children, makes him repeated uh, makes repeated reference to the enslaved people who once lived and worked at Monticello, but presents a nuanced version of Jefferson and focuses little on his accomplishments. Jeffrey Tucker, the founder of the Libertarian Brownstone Institute, recently took a group of uh, tour uh, to Monticello, noted a surly and dismissive tone from his tour guide. Someone asked if Jefferson had built a machine in the house, and the guide said, nah, he never really built anything. He was a tinkerer. He was a tinkerer? Are you kidding me? I mean, he designed Monticello. That's his design. The clock is his design. Oh, my gosh, I I can't take it. He also, uh, you know, founded the University of Virginia and the author of the Declaration of Independence. However, however, in a video posted on the Monticello Facebook page, tour guide Carl <laughs> Kyle Chattington, Chattleton. Oh, my gosh. Is that a pretentious name? <laughs> Hi. Yes, I'm Kyle Chattington, the third. He claims, how is it that Jefferson wrote that all men are created equal? and yet also held people as slaves. It's the one of the most common questions that visitors ask. I'd like to know their answer. Stu, do you know the answer? <laughs> I, I don't think that I do, Glenn. I don't think that I do. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, just would, if you don't know the answer, would you Google mm. first draft first. of the Declaration of Independence? Draft. Of the it is in his own handwriting, and he capitalizes a couple of words. Hmm. He was vehemently opposed to slavery. He tried his whole life to stop it. Why? Why did he write "All men are created equal"? And he didn't realize slaves were men on the third page of the Declaration of Independence that he wrote, and two states stopped. It says the king is having men sold on the open market. Hello. The the Christian king of Great Britain, which was, by the way, capitalized in there to show everybody in a mocking tone that he wasn't acting all that Christian when he was saying that he wanted people to be owned and used for the purposes of the crown. I mean, you know, this is in the, of course, the section where they're just, he's, they're just lighting up Great Britain and the king and saying, hey, like, these are all the terrible things they've done and why we have to do this, why we have to declare independence in the first place. Here's our list of grievances. And that's, I mean, the longest one, it's, it's the most prominent one. It's half a page. It's half a page. It goes on and on and on and on, just complaining about slavery, how bad it is and how it should stop immediately. 
Now they needed consensus, and, and they how didn't many have it times on that. the king, and how many times the king had thwarted them yeah. uh, in trying to stop it. That's why Thomas Jefferson had slaves, but was against slavery. It's not because he's an American sphinx that we just can't figure out. No. He fought in Virginia to change the laws. He could not sell his slaves or release them upon his death because he was in debt. And you couldn't free slaves if you were in debt. And he was millions in debt on his death. So he, the record is clear. Oh my gosh, I can't. Oh. And he inherited this story. That's another important point. The slaves were inherited. Yeah. 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 But he was making wild, passionate love to Sally Hemings. (laughs) Or or his brother was. So now we've gone down a rabbit hole. Uh, I brought up Sally Hemings, and now Stu is on a Sally Sally Hemings rabbit hole. Yeah. And what have you found? Well, you know, Monticello said, you know, they think it's likely that he fathered maybe one, maybe more than one of these children. And I was thinking to myself... Just did Jefferson do that? What what's like the the real backing on this? So I I, I went into uh, one of the big scholars commission reports, the Thomas Jefferson uh, Jefferson Heritage uh, Organization, and they they summarize it this way. This is what their report was after studying it's three hundred pages long. In the end, after roughly one year of examining the issues, we find the question of whether Thomas Jefferson fathered one or more children by his slave Sally Hemings to be one about which honorable people can and do disagree. However, it is our unanimous view that the allegation is by no means proven, and we find it regrettable that public confusion about the 1998 DNA testing and other evidence has misled many people into believing that the issue is closed. With the exception of one member, whose views are set forth below, uh, our individual conclusions range from serious skepticism about the charge to a conviction that it is almost certainly untrue. And it goes through, there's a, you know all, all the scholars that were related to wow. this. Uh, backed that opinion with the exception of one uh and this is what the the dissent wrote um with the report with the report of the majority i am in general agreement i dissent only in believing it somewhat more likely than not that thomas jefferson was the the father of eston hemmings one of the children um goes on to say uh it also it uh, could have been uh, others. It says, this suggests the possibility that Thomas Jefferson fathered all of her known children, but it does not prove that he fathered even one. What it does establish is a strong probability that her pregnancies during the period when she appears to have resided at Monticello were occasioned by his sojourns there. So he just happened to be, their evidence is, he seemed to be there at about the same time she got pregnant. It is, in fact, do they mention at all? Mm-hmm. Do they mention at all the smear on him? In uh, I think it was like 1801, they started smearing him, uh, you know, as as president, and in the campaign, and they they the smear was his brother slept with slaves. They yeah, didn't yes. mention that? It, it, no, it does. It goes into the, the the fact that it could be any of here. Uh, let's see. It is, in fact, notwithstanding, a mistake to jump to the conclusion that Jefferson must have been the father of Sally Hemings' children, for there were other events that normally coincided with his visits there. Among these, one is pertinent to this inquiry, the presence of visitors whose offspring are tolerably likely to have looked like Thomas Jefferson. Visitors such as Thomas Jefferson's younger brother, Randolph, Randolph's four or five sons, and Peter and Samuel Carr, sons of his sister. 
uh, it goes through, it, I mean, it breaks, it's 300 pages. It breaks down all of these things in incredible detail. But the, I, I mean, you look at the summary, they're either very skeptical of it or completely disregard it, with the exception of one guy who was from Hillsdale, uh, by the way, not some, you know, crazy liberal guy, uh, but said, look, I don't think, uh, I don't, th- I think it's more likely than not that one of the children was. But that's not a clo- open and shut case by any means, and there's a no. lot of uh, other possibilities there, which is interesting. That's and not how the media this, covers that at all. This is not being taught at Monticello. What's being taught at Monticello is that he fathered Sally Hemings' children. There's the evidence. How does Monticello get away with it? Huge liberal donations. Carol Roth uh, is a a friend and a friend of the program. She's the author of the book, The War on Small Business. She's a, in her words, a recovering investment banker, worked on uh, Wall Street for quite some time, but sees things from Main Street and can explain things uh, to Main Street uh, as opposed to everybody else who I just think talks about Wall Street stuff. And it doesn't matter to the average person. Um, unless you can break it down and explain it. Uh, Carol Roth, welcome to the program. Hi, Carol. Hi, Glenn. How are you doing? Uh, Good, Uh, good. Um, So we have a couple of things I want to go through. First of all, the CPI, this is the Consumer Price Index, the inflation number is at 9.1. I loved your tweet the other day. Let me see if I can find it. You said, first... There will be no inflation. Then inflation is transitory. Inflation is good for you. Inflation only hurts the rich. Inflation is the consumer's fault. Inflation is greedy businesses' fault. Inflation is Putin's fault. Inflation is backward-looking. And your last one is breadlines are a great way to meet people. Um, the latest is it's backward-looking. That, that's what the White House came out and said. That, that, those are old numbers. But they didn't say that the new numbers would be better. I mean, backward looking, forward looking, up, down in a circle, like whichever way that you're looking, this is something that is affecting all of our lives. You know, I was thinking about taxation and how taxation is theft, but it is a one-time theft. It's a one-time theft of your earnings. Inflation is permanent theft. It permanently steals your ability to purchase goods and services, the wealth that you've created, everything that you've worked hard to earn and saved. And this is what we are seeing. And you know, while the the nine point one percent, you know, wasn't uh, necessarily a surprise, it is still really shocking to see it on paper. And as you and I have discussed before, you know, these are the manipulated numbers. These are the the formula changes that have happened a few times since the nineteen eighties. If you looked on this. Um, you know, how it would have been on an apples to apples basis to 1980. It's it's probably about double that. So this is theft from the American people by central planning that was completely avoidable. And it is just so, so frustrating and angering. So they they said I read an article early this morning that talked about 
there's a possibility that by the end of the month, the Fed is talking now about raising it another point, another point. And you gave me a stat a while back because people don't think this. Our debt has interest attached to it. And when we go out as a nation for a trillion dollars, we have to pay interest. And you gave me a stat for every one point added, it adds to our debt and deficit. How much? Okay, so that, so just, just this is a, not a direct line, but basically think about this. We have about you know a, a six to seven year average on our debt, which means that our national debt is constantly being refinanced. And as we take on new debt, we have to to go out and, and pay for that at new rates. So whether you're refinancing it or you know, you, you're taking on new date debt for every one trillion dollars that we either refinance or take on a new new debt, that will be an extra one hundred billion dollars that is added to our interest service on the debt. So stuff that we have already paid for. It's not a linear one-to-one. It's not like when the Fed funds rate goes up, it automatically increases the debt, but it does trickle right. through. It trickles through to the 10-year yields and the three-year so, yields and the two-year yields, which is, is the way that our, that we, we have to um, uh, finance our debt and, and what's paid for it. So if we did uh, have to read redo $5 trillion in our debt, which is not un, uh, unusual. If we had to buy and, and refinance another $5 trillion on our debt, that would add a trillion dollars worth of debt, would it not? Because we've, we've gone up two points, or we will have gone up two points. Yeah, I mean, if you, yeah, net, net, nets, correct, yes. Yeah, holy cow. Yeah, I mean, the projections, um, at what if you point, look at... The, at what interest rate... I was going to say, if you look at the CBO projections, uh, you know, they project out into the future and the numbers in terms of the debt and what we're going to be paying on it in the future. And and they're using conservative numbers. They're not even expecting these Fed rates would absolutely blow your mind. I mean, it becomes the largest item that the government has to pay for, which obviously takes away spending from other areas and or increases your taxes. Unless you're using modern monetary theory, which we are now basically using modern monetary theory, which means you can print whatever you want. The government doesn't have to worry about it. But that's exactly, I mean, they said it in Sri Lanka. They're using modern monetary theory, and it has wiped them out, wiped them out. Yeah, I mean, this is basically the the concept of what's happening here in terms of our liabilities. They're trying to take a dollar from your left pocket move it to your right pocket and go, oh, look, you have a new dollar. You know, that that's not the way that any of this works. And we are all feeling the effects of this, you know, fantastical buy-in to magic money tree, a.k.a. MMT, modern monetary theory, the idea that just because you have the printing press that you can keep printing money without having a subsequent effect on the dollar. You know, the money's supposed to stand for productivity. You earn this. This, this is a st- stable... Um, representation of your productivity. If you double or triple or quadruple the amount of of those dollars without increasing productivity, then each one of those 
uh, in turn is worth less. And that is what's happening. And that's why our the value of our dollars are being eroded. Go back to that 1970s Saturday Night Live skit with Dan Aykroyd pretending to be Jimmy Carter. You know, we're all going to be millionaires and, you know, we're going to be uh, driving around in cars that cost, you know, $20 million. So, you know, it, it, it sounds right. great from a top right. line standpoint until you kind of get into it. Okay, so most people put their money in their IRA, and then until they get older, they don't even look at it. Um, And that's probably a good thing when you're dealing with the stock market. You just leave it in, and it has its ups and downs. And you start looking at it maybe when you're 50 or 60, and you're like, wait a minute, Uh, and start to to, uh, make sure that it's secure because there's not a long horizon um, that you're looking at. What's happening to people's 401ks right now and what can they do? So there was um, a, a research study that I picked up that came out and they said from the beginning of the year to June of this year, people have lost $3.4 trillion in their retirement funds between 401ks and IRAs. This doesn't include any other money that may have been in the market. And this is you know, a horrendous situation that has been you know, completely fueled um, by Fed policy, really going all the way back to the Fed chair, Alan Greenspan, who decided that he was gonna never let the market fall um, too much without having some intervention. Then in the Great Recession financial crisis, Ben Bernanke took that, put it on steroids, and then what Powell and his group have done has been you know, completely crazy. And we, we are living through these crazy boom and bust cycles. I'm sure that, that most of you have noticed that over the last you know, several decades, things are very different than they were in the decades before, you know, more of these huge booms and busts. And the reality is that the people who are already wealthy and well-connected, um, who have that, that long-term staying power, they don't mind this at all because they benefit when everything goes up. And then when everything goes bust and you know you as you know, somebody who's panicking and not sure what's to do, you take your money out of the market or you know perhaps you know in the great financial uh, the great recession financial crisis, your home's foreclosed on, you know all of these things happen and they fall on the shoulders of the little guy. And then these, you know, I'm calling them vulture capitalists, come in, well capitalized, buy everything up as at pennies on the dollar, and then are, are positioned for the next boom cycle of interference. And this is just an epic wealth transfer. It's been happening, you know, on an accelerated basis for decades and decades, and is the outgrowth of just this horrible central banking experiment that has gone wrong and has been a complete menace to society and to the wealth creation opportunities for the average American. So what do people do? So if I mean, you I can... Think, I think we're losing the... I think we're losing the idea of retirement for a lot of people. I, I just... I don't think that retirement is going to be a thing of the... of the yeah. nearer future. Yeah, I mean, certainly not at the ages, I think, that people um, perhaps were expecting because you don't know what's around the corner. This is where I encourage everybody to talk 
to their financial advisor because each person's scenario is so different. And depending on your time frame, um, you know, because of these boom and bust cycles that are caused by the Fed and central planning, you know, timing is really important. You know, depending on when it is that you decide to change your portfolio structure, couldn't change everything in your life. But if you are, you know, younger and you have that ability to have the staying power, you want to do the same thing that the well-capitalized people are doing and wait for those bust cycles and be able to to participate as a vulture capitalist, even if it's on a smaller scale, and and you know, buy low and 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 ride the upside to that. But you need to have that planning in place because we are now living in a way that's not free market. It's completely driven um, by this sort of externality. And that means that you know, timing changes. And if you're somebody who's retiring in a bad cycle, you know, you're going to feel that burden on an exponential factor. So I, I, I have one more question for you, Carol. Let me take a one minute uh, break and and talk about. What all of this is doing, what, what's, what's happening is the president just said, hey, you got to be able to retire. And so I believe he just guaranteed all of the union pensions. So that means I'm now paying for union pensions if they default, which is insanity. But again, it's just another giveaway. I, I predicted this, I think, in 2009 that the government would step in and take all the union pensions and guarantee. But that, that means everybody else is paying for it and we're struggling our own selves. I want to talk to you a bit about that. And then, and then also, if this is what's happening here, what is all of this doing to other countries that have to pay for things in dollars? Back with uh, Carol Roth in, in just a second. So, Carol... Uh, first of all, explain what the president did with the unions. So he's still running around um, talking about the American Rescue Plan, which is, you know, hilarious. He's got absolutely nothing to hang his hat on. So he's going back and he's running around and talking about what he did in March 2021. Now, obviously, he's not talking about all the bad things that came out of that. Um, you know, things like, right. oh, you know, the, the stimulus that caused inflation and raising the reporting requirements for Etsy and, and eBay for or lowering them, excuse me, from $20,000 to $600 because because, you know, all those billionaires with $600 accounts, we need to crack down on them. Um, he's hanging his hat on a, a piece of legislation that was in that that was called the Butch Lewis Act. And basically that was we are going to to be the, the guarantor of the union pensions. Now, we, we've been told that unions are very important, right? You know, they, they need to be there in order to secure people's futures and be there for the workers, but apparently they're not real good at managing the pensions, so now we need to get involved. And so he touted that this was going to impact, you know, several million um, pensions. Some of the reports I've seen are, are downplaying that number and saying it, it's fewer, but basically what they did is that there is a pension, you know, Guarantee Corp, and they allowed them to, to do some things and change some things around to make sure that these pensions were solvent. But what they didn't do is actually anything structural <laughs> to fix the pension. So just like, you know, Social Security, all of the, um, you know, state pensions, union pensions, like whatever it is that typically has a defined benefit attached to it um, and ends up being a, a huge drag and a huge burden on everybody and, and, and you know, not solvent, um, they just kicked the can down the road 
but since he has absolutely no other accomplishments to hang his hat on, this is what he's talking about. But the part of it that really bothered me and, you know, why I wrote the piece for The Blaze um, was that, again, this is the picking of winners and losers that we keep seeing over and over again with the mm -hmm. government. And in this particular case, they are going to, to focus on making sure that the union folks don't lose 40% of their pension. But as I just told you, you know, through June this year, they said $3.4 trillion was lost from 401ks and retirement funds for other Americans who aren't affiliated with the unions. So, you know, that to me seems, again, just this, this government picking of winners and losers. And certainly if you're going to do that, you would think that wouldn't be something you'd want to brag about. Maybe you'd do that on the, the down low. But, you know, he's out there touting that as his accomplishment. All right, Carol, I've got to, we've got to cut you loose. Um, I've got to get back to an Ohio story here in a second. But w would you come back? I want to, we are crippling nations all over, especially emerging nations. They are going to be starving to death so soon, some of them. Uh, and they have to pay their own debt back in dollars. Dollars are becoming more expensive for them. The world is going to hate us soon, I fear. We'll talk about that when you come back. Thank you so much, Carol. New audio from January 6th indicates a leftist plot. Mr. Reagan. As the January 6th committee stages their show trial, a friend of mine who was at the January 6th protest felt compelled to send me a short video that he took while he was there. Now, before we break down this video, I need to add a little bit of context because this video can be interpreted in a variety of ways. And understanding my friend's perspective at the time, I think, is critical to appropriately interpreting what you hear in this video. Okay, so as we listen to this video, Keep in mind that at the time this video was shot, there were no whispers going through the crowd of any coup attempt, no plans to riot, and few people had actually even heard the term insurrection. Certainly, my friend had never heard talk of anything like this, and as far as he was concerned, all was peaceful and orderly. So according to him, this is about 3 p.m., and he noticed two guys, these were white guys, and they were dressed as thugs. Actually, I'm going to look here and see exactly what he wrote me. He said, um, two guys, early 20s, had a hip-hop vibe, urban, thuggish style, and one was wearing a Trump hat. The guy with saggy pants was talking on the phone, excited and out of breath, as if reporting to a handler. Based on what I heard, he was one of the first people who broke into the Capitol. Now, before I hear accusations of racism flying, uh, my friend who recorded this video is not white. Anyway, so he noticed these two guys dressed as thugs and speaking in a thuggish manner, and they did not seem to him to be patriots. He did not believe that they were Trump supporters. Now, he did not start recording this video until after having listened to them talk for a little while already, and what he told me is that one of the guys got on the phone, and this guy seemed to him 
to be reporting to some kind of a handler. So you get these two thuggish white guys that, to my friend, seem to be leftist operatives reporting back to a handler. Now let's listen to this video. The second man in, uh, I, first I broke it with a punch, and then this other kid pushed it in, and then, I, and then he went in, and then I went in, and then I went in, and then a hundred billion people went in. Now you'll notice that my friend did not film the guy's faces. The reason he didn't film their faces, in his words, is that they seemed dangerous. My friend believed that if they caught him recording them, that they'd stop talking and that they might even take his phone or worse, attack him. And my friend was not interested in any of those outcomes. And although this is not recorded on the video, according to my friend who shot this, the guy said the words mission accomplished or something to that effect. Specifically, he wrote here, uh, I think I heard him tell the person on the phone that his mission was done. So that's not in the video, but that's something that my friend overheard him say. Mission accomplished or the mission's done or something like that. And this is in part why my friend believes that this was the guy reporting back to a handler and why he believes that this was all a planned agitation. And so why don't we think that these people were Trump supporting patriots? Well, first, my friend did not believe these guys looked like Trump supporters. They looked, my friend, like Antifa or leftist thugs who were there to cause trouble. And that's why he started recording the video. And I actually have another friend who was there at the Capitol that day. This guy. There are trying to burn down our Capitol. And I did not come here for that shit. It ain't patriots up there anymore. If you go look, they look like Antifa. They don't look like me. They don't look like you guys. It is, it is time. They are going to be hunting the families down trying to go home now. They got us here after dark. See a lot of women, I see a lot of kids. Get your families home. Get out of here. And so while writing the script for this video, I called my friend here and I said, why did you think that Antifa was there? And he, he said to me that he had been to events in which Antifa had turned up before. And so he knows what Antifa looks like. And in his words, they look like zombies. They have this dead stare that is unmistakable. And a lot of the agitators on January 6th, he said, had that same dead stare. They had that same zombified look. He believes that leftists were there and they were trying to agitate the crowd. But why? Why would leftists try to agitate a crowd of Trump supporters? Three words. Incitement of insurrection. Now, I haven't heard a lot of people talk about the actual ramifications of being convicted of the specific crime of incitement of insurrection. But I have actually read the code myself, and one of the consequences of being convicted of this very specific crime is that you are forbidden from ever running for president. And so it makes sense that this would be a crime that the Democrats would try to frame Donald Trump for. And so this is how I imagine things went. I think that Trump is such a threat to the establishment that at some point Pelosi and the other swamp dwellers, they drew up a list of the various laws that would ban Trump from ever running for president ever again. I imagine that they probably had a few plans to try to frame him for a few different kinds of things, but the January 6th protest, they thought, gave them the best shot. So I believe that as soon as this protest was announced, they started plotting to insert agitators and to try to ignite some kind of violent surge at the Capitol. Donald Trump actually offered National Guard protection, but of course this would have completely derailed the plan, so Nancy Pelosi rejected this. I believe that this is also why there were so few Capitol Police officers there at the Capitol that day. And I also believe that it's why the Capitol Police officers who were there 
eventually stood down and ushered the protesters into the Capitol. Police are squabbling with protesters. Oh, there we go. Lock us in. I think that those who plotted this were actually hoping for much more violence against police and even congressmen. If I'm right about all this, then the plotters would have wanted as much violence and mayhem as possible and were probably hoping that the Capitol building would be burnt to the ground. Because the more violence and destruction that there was, the easier it would be to convince the American people that there was a real insurrection and that Donald Trump was responsible for that insurrection. Unfortunately for Pelosi and the other plotters, Trump supporters did not take the bait. The protest was peaceful, despite the best efforts of the agitators. One of my friends even suggested that he believes that the killing of Ashley Babbitt may have been done to cause the crowd to erupt. In any case, I'm convinced that most of the tussles with officers were done by leftist agitators. And we know that there were agitators there, and we know that these agitators were not Trump supporters. We know that the left-wing radical activist John Sullivan was there, for instance, encouraging violence and encouraging protesters to burn down the Capitol. And John Sullivan was tried and convicted, but has faced almost no prison time, unlike just about everybody else who has been targeted for prosecution. And he has reportedly even violated the conditions of his release, without any apparent consequence. We also know about Ray Epps. Ray Epps is the most notorious agitator of the January 6th protest. He's on video whispering to somebody just before that person tries to push down a barricade and force his way past Capitol Police officers. This was video shot by my friend Elijah Schaefer, but that is video that I can't show you without YouTube taking this video down. But you can find compilations of Ray Epps calling for protesters to go into the Capitol and protesters around him shouting him down with chants of Fed, Fed, Fed. Everybody knew that Ray Epps was trying to agitate the crowd and get Trump supporters in trouble, either legal trouble or simply to give left-wing media outlets material to use as propaganda to cast Trump supporters as dangerous. Again, at the time, very few people were familiar with the term insurrection. We didn't know that this was the plan. Now, I believe this was clearly the plan from the beginning. Now, we still don't know who Ray Epps was working for, if he was working with a private outside leftist organization or with the FBI, or if he was working directly for Nancy Pelosi or some other Democrat in government. This is unclear. But what we do know is that the FBI suspiciously took him off their wanted list, and then he was praised by the degenerate rhino, Adam Kinzinger, as just being an all-around awesome dude. And he has, inexplicably, received some kind of general immunity to investigation and prosecution, despite being the most obvious instigator of rioting on January 6th. And so we know there were leftist instigators there, and the evidence is clear, I believe, that this whole incitement of insurrection accusation was planned long before January 6th. And so, in a way, an insurrection has been attempted here, but it wasn't attempted by conservatives. This whole thing is a con. And although the con didn't go entirely according to plan, the Democrats are still trying to get something out of it. It's been reported that the January 6th committee has just subpoenaed William Stepien. Now, William Stepien just happens to be the campaign manager of Liz Cheney's primary political opponent, Harriet Hageman. Harriet Hageman is obliterating Liz Cheney in the polls. And so it's rather convenient that her campaign manager has been called to testify publicly 
at the January 6th show trial. The feds have also arrested a Republican politician, Ryan Kelly. Kelly is running for governor of Michigan against Gretchen Whitmer. And so it looks like this witch hunt is being exploited in every way Democrats can think up in order to gain as many corrupt advantages as possible. But these are all just additional benefits. The primary goal of the January 6th committee is to keep Donald Trump from running in 2024. As I said before, being forbidden from running for president is a specific consequence of anyone convicted of incitement of insurrection. And that is why they use that rhetoric. That's why they rejected the National Guard troops. And that's why there were so few Capitol Police officers at the Capitol on January 6th. And it's also why those officers stood down and ushered protesters into the Capitol. This was the plan from the beginning. Keep Trump from running again in 2024. Now, I don't see how this can actually work. The Democrats will certainly be able to, you know, officially declare that Trump incited an insurrection. I'm sure that they're going to do that. And they might even be able to convince many of their voters that this is true. But Trump will need to be convicted of incitement of insurrection in a court of law. He can't just be convicted by Congress. The most they can hope for is to convict him in the court of public opinion. And I don't even think that's going to happen. This is a long-term con that's headed straight toward a dead end. It's like the Russian collusion hoax. It's a nearsighted plan with no end game in mind. It's actually worse than the Russian collusion hoax because Russian collusion was actually intended to open Trump up to a thorough investigation out of which other crimes might be discovered. The plan was that after those other crimes were discovered, the narrative would shift and everybody would just forget the accusations of Russian collusion. Of course, no other crimes were discovered, and so the Russian collusion con eventually came to its inevitable dead end. But this new con, the incitement of insurrection con, well, that has to live and die by Trump's actual guilt. And Trump is very obviously not guilty. The accusation is patently absurd. And so I don't think there's any chance that this accusation will effectively stop Trump from running for president in 2024. But what Democrats learned from the Russian collusion con was that their most gullible voters will always believe these absurd accusations even after they're disproven. And so perhaps they think that these big lie cons are worth it, even though they know their most ambitious goals will fail. Democrats are con artists. Their marks are gullible Democrat voters, but the true victims are the American people. Well, that's it for me. And remember, it's not that all liberal friends are ignorant. It's just that they know so much that is not so. Good night. We're at war with the most dangerous enemy that has ever faced mankind in his long climb from the swamp to the stars. And it's been said if we lose that war and in so doing lose this way of freedom of ours, history will record with the greatest astonishment that those who had the most to lose did the least to prevent its happening. Well, President Biden's commitment to a Iran deal is bizarre enough, but what's inside the deal may well be catastrophically worse. Joining me now to talk about this is Richard Goldberg, former National Security Council director and senior advisor at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Uh, Richard, good to see you. You know, nobody is writing about this uh, except you. And when I put out some of your numbers yesterday, we had David Friedman on the set here, former ambassador to Israel, as I'm sure you know. Um, I quoted him from your New York Post article, which must be based uh, on something, some inside knowledge you have, that, um, what did you say, a couple of hundred billion dollars in cash will go to Iran up front? And over five years, it could be another $800 billion more, which actually, uh, Richard, is 
somewhat similar to the airplane full of cash and gold that Obama gave Iran back in whenever that was, 2010. I don't know when that was. It was so awful. So tell us some more about where you came up with these numbers and what else do you know? Because nobody else is writing about it, which is, to me, incredible. Well, Larry, thanks for having me on. And you remember working in the Trump administration, we had a very different policy, obviously, putting maximum pressure on the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism. Just think about where the world has come from. We had a president who was for American energy, working with our Saudi allies. We took two million barrels per day off the market from Iran. And gas prices went down, if you recall. And I remember you gave a recommendation to go for it. And you were right, Larry. What we have today right now is a president who's working on build back more terrorism, more missiles, more nuclear weapons for Iran. His build back better plan isn't working out. So now we have a build back better for the Islamic Republic of Iran. We've had economists take a look at the financial incentive package that's on the table as these talks continue. The president in this uh, Mideast trip saying he's committed to moving forward with this deal if the Iranians would just say yes, which means it'll just get sweeter for the Iranians who are still holding out. $275 billion worth of sanctions relief up front in the first year alone, another $800 billion worth of sanctions relief over the next five years. We're talking about a trillion dollars for the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism pursuing nuclear weapons and long-range missiles by 2030. And what do we get in return, Larry, in this deal? Not very much. It's the same terms as the last deal, only Iran gets to keep all of the advances in nuclear weapons capabilities that they've made over the last year and a half under President Biden. You get to put all these advanced centrifuges into storage, have them ready to threaten us at any time. You get to keep sponsoring terrorism keep testing their missiles. And as we know, that'll just mean a trillion dollars over the next few years for Iran, and they still get nuclear weapons to boot. It makes absolutely no sense. Richard, let me uh, just hone in on a couple details. Um, I assume, therefore, the deal, uh, which still no one talks about, it will end the sanctions, A, and B, will actually provide cash to Iran, both, yeah, it's a combination of all the frozen assets around the world right now, which are estimated over $100 billion oh. of inaccessible foreign exchange reserves. Right. Then you have the sanctions relief. So all their oil exports now coming back to the market, their petrochemical sales, all their non-energy sales as well, the foreign direct investment. You put that all together at today's prices, you are looking at upwards of $275 billion up front in year one and then $800 billion over the next five years. Uh, th this is a massive, massive economic rescue package for the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism. And remember, the main institutions that will receive the sanctions relief are the chief financiers of a group the president now calls directly a terrorist organization, the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guard Corps. And again, you don't get strict limits. You don't get anything that's actually removed from Iran's nuclear program. They get to keep enriching uranium. They get to keep all these advanced centrifuges. They get to keep extorting us uh, for years to come. In the 1930s, we called this an appeasement policy. I'm from Chicago. We would just call it an extortion racket. Mm. And of course, when you keep paying the racket, it doesn't turn out well. Um, why hasn't this surfaced? I'm, I mean, look, I understand why the Bidens wouldn't want this to surface. But why hasn't anybody dug into this? I mean, there must be, you know, he says he's got a plan on the table and he's not going to give them forever. 
But the point is, he's saying out there in the Middle East right now, this whole trip, I put a plan on the table. Why haven't people uncovered this plan? Why aren't the media uh, breaking this down? I mean, even his own national security people aren't talking about it. Well, there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, we are very distracted as a country right now by what's going on uh, between Russia and Ukraine, for, uh, and rightly so. Uh, but I do think that, that at least in the Senate, uh, we started seeing people paying attention. In the House of Representatives, we saw Democrats stepping up and saying, whoa, this deal is sounding really, really bad. What happened was is then when Russia invaded Ukraine, it became very public back in March that Russia was at the center of brokering this deal mm. that's still on the table. Mm. And Russia stands to gain billions of dollars from the deal itself, selling nuclear power to Iran and also using Iran as a sanctions evasion hub. China also has a 25-year deal that depends on this deal going through and sanctions being lifted. Right, Russia. So th there's a lot here to unpack. I do think that there are members of the House and Senate who are looking at this closely, have said to the administration, this would be dead on arrival if you submitted it as a treaty. Mm. Uh, and so uh, the Biden administration has a choice to make. Do they work through this and stay at the table now in Doha, Qatar, when they come back from this trip and say, please, 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 can we give you this much money mm. uh, to make a deal? even though they'll have major political backlash back at home. Right. Uh, or will they say, hey, it's time for a new policy here. Our policy hasn't worked. Maybe that maximum pressure thing was working out pretty good. All right. Richard Goldberg, we appreciate the research. Um, I'm sure you're right. And that's probably why they don't want to let this thing get out. Anyway, appreciate it very much. Welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. Not to brag, but we're coming to you from Iowa. We'll explain why in just a minute. But first, here's an interesting story. Ronnie Jackson is a physician. He joined the White House Medical Unit many years ago under President George W. Bush. He stayed in that job. He went on to serve as physicians to the two subsequent presidents, Barack Obama and Donald Trump. So Ronnie Jackson knows a lot about what it takes to run the country. During the 2020 presidential campaign, Jackson was home watching Joe Biden deliver a speech. And what he saw Biden say bothered him deeply as a physician. Biden had just announced that he was a candidate for the U.S. Senate. Watch. I'm here to ask you for your help. Where I come from, you don't get far unless you ask. My name's Joe Biden. I'm a Democratic candidate for the United States Senate. So Ronnie Jackson saw that and then went on Twitter. And he made the obvious point. Joe Biden, before this goes any further, should undergo a cognitive examination. The country deserves that. Well, within 20 minutes, Jackson recalls in his new memoir, Barack Obama sent him an email, a characteristically sneering one. And we're quoting, I have to express my disappointment at the cheap shot you took at Joe Biden via Twitter, Obama said. It was unprofessional. I expect better. So that wasn't just Obama speaking. That was the uniform command of the people who run the Democratic Party throughout the 2020 campaign. Do not notice what Joe Biden is actually like. If you see him on television, turn away, because you might conclude he is fundamentally, physically, cognitively unfit for office. 
But you can't say that. And if you do, Barack Obama will scold you personally, immediately. Well, fast forward a few years. Joe Biden is now the president, and his mental decline is no longer possible to deny, and therefore it's no longer off limits. Barack Obama isn't going out and defending Joe Biden's competence anymore. Everybody watching, everyone in the media, that would include Barack Obama's former advisors, is now in agreement that Joe Biden is senile and cannot govern the United States. Watch. He tends to uh, shuffle sometimes mm -hmm. because he has, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, mobility issues that the doctors have identified. Uh, he sometimes his speeches tend to be a little listless, or he seems to momentarily get confused or have trouble summoning names. A third of them, the largest number, said age that he was too old. Yeah. That is a problem that's not going to get better. He's not going to get younger. He's not going to get any younger. I think there are a lot of people who have looked at him over these uh, last uh, years uh, and seen he isn't what he used to be ten years ago. He knows he's 80 years old, 79, 80 years old. He knows he's an old white guy in a party is demographically changing and diverse, and the future is not going to be an old white guy. When he does badly, when he stumbles, you get nervous, and you wonder, is it just a stutter, is he tired, or something else there? Listen, if anybody says that Democrats aren't beginning to have these questions behind closed doors, that's not true. People are. So the problem with Joe Biden, says Mark McKinnon, is that he's white. Notice the casual racism of the left, 2022. It's ubiquitous, you barely even notice it. That's not the problem with Joe Biden. Who cares what his skin color is? The problem with Joe Biden is he's cognitively unable to serve. But take three steps back. That's not Joe Biden's fault. It's not his fault he has dementia. No, the fact that Joe Biden is president is an indictment of the media and the Democratic Party because they have known. Contrary to what they're telling you now, Joe Biden's decline, his full-blown senility, has been obvious for more than three years. We noticed it. We're not doctors. And by the way, we had no special animus toward Joe Biden at all. But we watched him. And we said this out loud for the first time we checked today on May 14th, 2019. As of today, pretty much everyone paid to prognosticate on television still considers Biden the prohibitive frontrunner in the race. He checks every box. Therefore, he must get the nomination. That's how they think, because they're dumb. What they're leaving out of the equation is Biden himself. Watch this video and ask yourself if Joe Biden is really going to be the Democratic nominee, much less president of the United States. It was shot yesterday in New Hampshire. Keep in mind, we have not altered it in any way. This is entirely real. Watch. Vice President Biden, do you have a comment on the Chinese tariffs? I'll answer this question. The answer is yes, I do. The president has done nothing but increase the tariffs, the, the, the debt, and the trade deficit. The way you have to proceed is we have to have our allies with us. It's not just us. We have to keep the rest of the world together. Secondly, we should, labor should be at the table, as well as our allies, because that's the only thing. And the fourth thing we should do is be focusing on the things that, in fact, I've been talking about for a long time. China's greatest violation is the way in which they steal our intellectual property. We should make it quid pro quo, as I've told when I was dealing with Xi Jinping. It should be simple. Here's the deal. You say that if, in fact, don't, anything has to be owned 50 percent by Chinese to invest in China, guess what? In America, it's the same thing. This idea of dealing with all the only people who are paying the price are farmers and working people right now. He's going about it all the wrong way. A lot of bravado, no action. But wait a second, you're saying to yourself, that didn't make any sense. 
Not a single phrase in a full minute of talking conveyed an intelligible idea, not one. That wasn't even word salad. It was a verbal Jackson Pollock painting. Nouns, verbs, adjectives spilled like cans of paint, bleeding into each other, a sticky postmodern mess. At one point, Biden actually jumped from point two directly to point four. Just to let you know that your old-fashioned linear assumptions about numerical sequencing are no good here, man. That's yesterday's mathematics. So we put that on the air back in 2019. Again, not because we were particularly against Joe Biden. He seemed a lot better than Beto O'Rourke or Mayor Pete. We put it on because we happened to be watching one day and tried to follow what he was saying about China because it seemed important. Not one national news organization had noted at all that this guy couldn't speak in complete sentences, couldn't convey coherent ideas. Nobody had ever mentioned that. And of course, anyone in Washington knew Joe Biden. He'd been there since 1972. And basically, most people kind of liked him. He was a friendly guy. This was not the Joe Biden anyone who knew Joe Biden had seen before. He completely changed. This was clearly cognitive decline. This was dementia, obviously. So we drew a conclusion that now sounds ridiculous, but it seemed logical at the time. This guy can't be the Democratic nominee. He can barely speak. How did he manage to get through the campaign? Well, it turned out, we learned later, his staff, supervised by Dr. Jill, his wife, was giving him pills before every public appearance, checking the time and at a certain hour giving him a dose of something. Now, that's not a guess. We're not making that up. We've spoken directly to someone who was there and saw it happen multiple times. Now, before taking the medication, this person said, Biden was, quote, like a small child. You could not communicate with him. He changed completely because he was on drugs, and he clearly still is on drugs. No one's pushing to know what those drugs are. We should know. But the point is, Joe Biden's dementia was perfectly obvious to everyone around him more than three years ago. So we never thought this could happen. You can't make a senile man president of the United States. This is our country. This is a real country. It needs a real leader, even when you disagree with. But someone who's in full possession of his faculties. No one would ever do that. It's crazy. We're completely wrong. We're wrong because we underestimated the cynicism and the recklessness of the Democratic Party and the media who serve them. They will say literally anything, no matter how implausible or immoral, if it brings them more power. They knew exactly how incapacitated Joe Biden was. They lied about it. And the disaster we're living with today is a direct result of their lying. And it's getting worse. It's humiliating. Yesterday, for example, we could go on for an hour, we're not going to, but just to sum it up, yesterday, Joe Biden tried to shake an invisible man's hand. Not the first time he's done this. He did the same thing in April. And both of those sad moments are on tape. Here they are. God bless you all. What a great honor. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, President Herzog and President Biden. So if you don't like Biden or his agenda, and we certainly don't, there is a kind of partisan glee you take from this. Look how pathetic he is. But, you know, if you're an American, there's no upside, actually. This is horrible for all of us. It reflects poorly not just on the Democratic Party or Biden himself, but on our country. And it's happening constantly with increasing frequency. On Wednesday of this week, during a trip to Israel, Biden announced that we have to keep alive the, quote, honor of the Holocaust. Huh? Continue, which we must do every, every day continue to bear witness, to keep alive the truth and honor of the Holocaust, horror of the Holocaust. 
It's just, it's absolutely awful. And again, there's no upside. So Joe Biden's senile. Everybody knows it. Do we win a prize now? No. We watch our country degrade. So you have to ask, who did this to the rest of us? Who's responsible for putting this guy in a position where he was elected president? Well, we could start the list of the culpable with Joe Biden's 2020 campaign manager, Jen O'Malley Dillon. She did this. Where is she now? Well, she's now deputy chief of staff in the White House. She knew exactly how senile Joe Biden was. Susan Rice knew well, too. Of course she did. Susan Rice now runs America's domestic policy out of the White House. Ron Klain knew perfectly well that Joe Biden was not fit to be president, that he has dementia. Ron Klain was elevated to White House chief of staff. And of course, Dr. Jill, his wife, was perfectly aware. Members of Joe Biden's own family knew perfectly well and told other people about it. We've reported that before, and it's true. And yet they didn't stop him. Mike Donlan was the chief strategist of Joe Biden's presidential campaign. Now he's one of Biden's, quote, senior advisors. Same with Anita Dunn. She was once co-campaign manager. She's now another senior advisor for Biden and a former Obama communications director. She has massive power in this country. That's how she was rewarded for foisting this guy on the rest of us. Brian Deese, same thing. The man who screwed up our climate and energy policy during the Obama years. He knew perfectly well Joe Biden was senile. But he wanted power again, so he didn't say a word. Once again, same principle at work. People make grave errors in judgment. They do something horrible to the United States of America, and they're rewarded for it. They're never punished, they're rewarded. These people now run the country. And above all, Barack Obama. Barack Obama knew perfectly well that Joe Biden was senile. Barack Obama spent eight years making fun of Joe Biden and degrading Joe Biden because Joe Biden has no dignity. He put up with it. But Obama knew that Biden wasn't fit to be president. And that matters because Obama is and has always been the person actually running the Democratic Party. And of course, the media knew. They knew perfectly well. But they lied. From day one, they lied. Here they are telling us during the campaign that Joe Biden actually, shut up ageist, is perfectly fine. Well, he just decided to bypass the primaries and go right to the main event and kind of consign everybody else to the kiddie table. That is Joe Biden at his best. That is someone who uh, is authentic. Mm -hmm. It's the reason he connects with people. He is having fun. This is not heavy lifting for, for Joe Biden. Joe Biden never gave up on Joe Biden. And it reminded me so much of 2008 John McCain. Look, help is on the way. Help is on the way. Joe Biden, uh, we need him. You know, you hit play on your phone or whatever, and there's Uncle Joe, Grandpa Joe Biden, talking in a way that I think Americans want to hear. The person, the person of Joe Biden is a welcome entry into this race. Every one of those people knew. Again, we knew and said so out loud, not because we have some special entree into the secrets of the Democratic Party. We certainly don't. We're hardly Democratic Party insiders, but because we watched TV for 90 seconds and we saw unmistakably the signs of dementia in Joe Biden. Every one of the people you just saw lied about what they knew. They hid that fact from you and the rest of the country because they wanted more power. But now the game is over for Joe Biden. As Mark McKinnon said, he's just too white. So suddenly our media is admitting what we noted three years ago and that everyone knew that this was a scam. They are living with the mess they created. And we hope that they will never be allowed to avoid responsibility for what they did. Subscribe to the Fox News YouTube channel to catch our nightly opens, stories that are changing the world and changing your life. From Tucker Carlson tonight.